0: Dear listeners, welcome to Faces of Digital Health, a podcast about digital health and how healthcare systems around the world adopt technology with me, Tiasa Zeitz. This is the last episode of Faces of Digital Health podcast in 2021, and I've decided to make it a bit different. Instead of an interview or a string of predictions for 2022, you will hear a cross-continental reflection about the past year or two, which I had with two other podcasters, Joy Rios, the host of Hit Like a Girl podcast, a podcast and a community supporting women in healthcare IT, and Bianca Rose Phillips, the host of a Voice of Law podcast and the digital health lawyer who recently published a book Making the digital health a revolution. This was a cross-continental discussion since Joy is based in Mexico, Bianca in Australia, and I'm from Slovenia in Europe. We exchanged experiences with the pandemic in our environments and talked about our learnings through our shows in the last year. So enjoy the discussion And as mentioned, we'll be back in January, so do subscribe to the podcast to be notified about the next episode automatically. Happy holidays and a nice New Year's celebration, and we'll be back in January. Now, to Reflections. Okay, so let's do this. Joy, Bianca, hi. It's so very nice to to see you both. Bianca uh, in her morning routine, Joy in her afternoon routine. It's... uh, Late in the evening for me in Europe, so three different continents in one video call. So the aim of this meetup was for us to reflect a little bit on the last two years to see what we've observed in the digital health space. So maybe as a warm-up question, let's just start with how was your situation in the last two years during the pandemic, Bianca in Melbourne, Joy in the U.S. and Mexico, and I'll also share a little bit about how the whole situation unraveled here in Slovenia and in Europe. So, Joy, go ahead.
1: Yep, so I had a really unique timing. I moved to Mexico March of 2020, like literally leap year day, not having any clue what was going to happen. So I had just been set up for a big life change already, but had no idea like what was coming down the pike. And so I spent the majority, like the first part of 2020 in like profound isolation. I knew I was in a new country. I didn't speak Spanish fluently. I still don't. And I had just moved into a new home and was like, oh my God, how, what just happened? (laughs) The borders closed and I was like trying to figure my way and just really using that time to connect and through Zoom and meet up with people as much as possible online and take advantage of all of the digital ways that we can stay connected. And so that time alone really was a ti it forced me to be in a time of growth. And so I learned a lot just personally and professionally at that time and it impacted me on like how on I'm just trying to think of like how can I make a bigger impact and create the community that I'm seeking. And so that sort of spawned a couple road trips because that ended up being like a safe way to travel, like to meet with people outdoors but still tap into them. And so I would, without taking up too much time, but yeah, that was, it was like the balance between spending a lot of time alone and then finding ways to connect.
0: We definitely are going to dig a little bit more deeper in that road trip of yours that you should write a book about. But Bianca, what's your situation at the moment? I know that from the global perspective, we've been looking at Australia and just trying to figure out like how can the whole vaccination situation be as bad as it was there. It, it seems that you didn't have the opportunity to get vaccinated for a very long time. So what's the status now? Mm,
2: that's right. The status now is we have 90.4% of our population double vaccinated. And we've opened up and we've all received letters in the mail to remind us to have our booster shots. So that's good. Until recently, proof of vaccination was required in retail shops in all retail stores. But now those rules have recently changed. So in certain shops like hairdressers, you'll need to prove that you're vaccinated. In other shops, you just need to check in into the store we see job openings now more flexible working arrangements and i think a country ready to lead innovation in the 21st century we're doing really well at the moment about 10 years ago or more when i started in this industry i thought that australia was quite slow off the off the mark there but now i think we've really we're doing very well here in melbourne we had six lockdowns which meant school closures working from home if you had my husband was working at a hospital some of the time it meant putting your career on hold looking after the kids doing home learning with them and the elimination strategy worked quite well until it stopped working and then we needed to rethink the strategy here so thinking back it's it feels like forever but I went on a trip in January 2020 to Chattanooga Tennessee by myself Flew across the world, multiple planes, went on this adventure to go to a conference just for a few days and then come home. But when I landed that same day, it was declared that there was a case at Melbourne Airport of COVID-19. So that's really when it all began. And I'm just so glad I got that trip in beforehand because our borders have been closed until very recently. Um, you still cannot fly from Melbourne to Western Australia in the same country, but we're now accepting people from from international, international travel. So it's quite interesting. We can't see my grandmother in Perth, but we could have relatives from America come here. No, you cannot. Unless you have an exemption, there are some circumstances where they will let you, but it has to be really, you have to apply for that. But uh, no, the border is absolutely closed and we can't travel there at all so there was a lot of I think a feeling of isolation during this pandemic here in Melbourne where so under the lockdown rule when we were under lockdown you could not travel past five kilometers from your home we could not walk five kilometers from our home we could not drive five kilometres from our or anything. My parents live 25 kilometres away, so we couldn't see each other during those periods. But my mum, who has a mother in Perth, that's a lot, a lot further distance and they still cannot actually see each other. So we're just hoping that things change. Apparently the border will open in about February 2022. You never know. So we're just trying to keep positive and, and just some perspective as well to remind ourselves that we're all going through something quite profound here and uh, we're all making sacrifices as and i felt a bit stuck stuck in this area and i can't go anywhere else that being said we didn't have police marching down the street we didn't have robotic dogs walking down patrolling us there was a sense that, that we're going to stick by the rules and and do this and uh, it worked very well for a long time victorians did amazing in terms of the elimination strategy we had zero cases for a while and uh, and then it just stopped working and so yeah we, we needed to do something else. But
0: vaccination rate's really great. Yeah, you really do have an amazing situation because like here, when the pandemic began in 2020, we were clearly very scared, as was the rest of the world. For a while, in the first wave, Slovenia was doing amazingly. So the numbers were really low and the situation normalized a lot. But then the government changed and everything just went downhill. And it's been bad ever since. There there were protests that started against the government 87 weeks ago so for 87 Fridays in a row we've had protests every Friday A uh, very constructive type of protest so with public forums with the discussions with intellectuals uh, speaking out on what's not uh, being done right at the same time when the whole restrictions related to either you have to be vaccinated or tested or have had to have COVID to be able to go to some institutions. After that was implemented, uh, we had an additional set of different protesters that started happening on Wednesdays. For a while, Slovenia was actually the number one country that was worse off based on the number of new cases weekly. At the moment, we have 56% of people that are fully vaccinated twice, and the number of people that's vaccinated at least once is only 3% more, so 59%. So still Still very low. <laughs>
2: The vaccination approach
0: here, with those
2: numbers, that's good numbers, right, 50%. We have 90.4% in Australia. So I'm wondering the difference here in strategy. I mean, it's maybe not something we could get to the the bottom of of today, but I'm definitely curious about the different strategies that
0: we use to to
2: encourage people to get vaccinated.
0: Yeah, I think, like, on a global level, we heard a lot about that in the last two years. What worked, what didn't, uh, what was the attitude of the government towards the, the public and here I think that, that seems to be one of the biggest uh, critiques that we, we see so the attitude that the government has towards the citizens is it's very paternalistic it's very disrespectful I did. This is actually not a too strong word. It's just disrespectful. So there's also a lot of corruption cases that have been present and revealed in the media with the protective equipment, with just things that have happened in the history because we've got a lot of old faces on the political stage at the moment. So when you combine all that and when the public trust is eroded, of obviously you can expect people to... To follow the leaders that they don't respect and if there's no there's a lack of respect on both ends the results can't be good so that's just the general impression
2: really interesting it was there was definitely a, a feeling during the lockdowns here of that sense of maybe distrust or even in australia what are they doing with these lockdowns and you know, it's very it feels very strict but the reality was that we were not going to be able, we weren't going to get out of lockdown until we got vaccinated. That was the message, mm-hmm. right? We're going to open up once you get vaccinated and we're not opening up unless you do. And there was that feeling we need to learn to live. This is what they were saying. We need to learn to live with COVID because we weren't used to living with COVID. No one we knew had COVID because the elimination strategy was so effective. It's not until very recently I heard that someone that I know of has recently had COVID and that they're, they're fine because they were va- vaccinated and whatever, but that, that was what it was like here. It was this, this elimination strategy. You didn't really know anyone who had it. You hadn't heard of that, but we weren't going to get out of it unless we had Mm -hmm. the vaccine. That's what the feeling was. I
1: I wish I could say the same for where I am, because I feel like I've known so many people. I run into so many people that have had it or have had it multiple times. They've been vaccinated and boosted and still got it. And I think that for me in particular, straddling the borders between Mexico and California and seeing the different countries manage it differently, like, to your point earlier, like there, the National Guard in Mexico was roaming the streets. Like I was scared to go outside when it was first the first lockdown went into effect because there were trucks with men in machine guns that were roaming the streets that literally were like, "What are you doing? Go back home." And I was like, "Yep, yeah, don't want to be part of that." Message received, going home. And then you could I could cross only for essential reasons, which for me was a dentist appointment, um, and to see on the other side that people weren't wearing masks were just like out at the park. Like it felt like it wasn't being taken seriously in parts of San Diego and other parts of California where they were just angry and just felt like they weren't going to manage it. And so it To go where we stand now, California now has an indoor mask mandate put reinstated. And I don't know how many times this has happened over the course of the last two years, but like as many times as they thought that we could open back up and go back to normal, COVID has come back and said, no, not yet. We're not ready for that. And it has not gone away here in Mexico where, and there's never been an issue around mask wearing or getting your temperature taken before you go into any retail store. There was never any controversy about whether it was the right thing to do. And sitting here and also knowing that Mexico is a destination place where people travel and come on their vacations, that when it did start to open up in the U.S., that people unvaccinated mostly were coming to Mexico For their holidays, because they could essentially get away with it. Like the U.S. was in lockdown, but Mexico, not so much. And honestly, it was really hard to watch because it just felt okay. You're gonna come if you don't think it's a big deal. You you can come and potentially spread it to communities for folks that don't have as many resources and aren't in a position to not work. Like they have to put themselves out there because it's their way of living. And and just, like, spreading it more and more, it it, it was really hard to watch and say, oh, yeah, good for you for going to Cancun or Cabo or Tulum for your vacation and and then potentially spreading this disease even farther.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. I want to just add two comments related to this topic, and then hopefully we can move either to a little bit more pleasant things such as digital health and what we've been doing on that front. But one of the things that I thought was quite interesting to to observe from the sociological perspective during all this time was that in Europe, because you've got so many different healthcare systems and still diverse cultures, there was a lot of polarization because obviously you can read today how other countries are managing the pandemic and there was no unifying uh, approach to how the pandemic is going to be handled. There, There was a lot of diversity in how Sweden did it, in how Austria did it, in how Slovenia did it. And then if you already have a situation where the people don't trust their leaders and they can compare what other leaders are doing, not taking into account the culture of another country uh, that can cause additional dissatisfaction because some country is re- less restrictive than your country is. And throughout the interviews that I've been doing uh, this year, I thought that the case of Taiwan was really interesting because Taiwan, again, was super successful in 2020. They uh, were successful because it's an island, because they have Had experience with an epidemic situation in the past, so that they knew that they need to go into lockdown very fast. They are not a member of WHO, so they didn't have to comply with the recommendations that the WHO did. But what ended up happening in 2021 was that they had a huge spike in cases because because the pandemic was handled really well and there weren't many cases when the vaccines came out. Nobody wanted to get. Get vaccinated because there was no covid and nobody felt the need that they should get vaccinated and then when a wave, a wave actually happened and people obviously became interested in getting vaccinated the the vaccine supply was too small to vaccinate enough people you ran into the whole wave of covid it's again under control now but it like to me it did show to how interesting it is that the human psychology is so very important when it comes to these topics and how you talk to people and how you communicate and how can you convey a message so it's well received but maybe joy going back to your road trip tell us a little bit more about about that what was that all about sure
1: if we're, fl- we're fl- it started in 2020, I went with just me and my dog, and I was like, we went around to eight different states and figured that was a, a, a safe way to travel. I literally brought my tent and camped in different national parks or state parks, and actually like visited friends, but camped on the side of their house instead of coming into their safe space inside. And I got super inspired by that and thought, how can I make that something that is accessible for the community. It felt like a really empowering time for me and felt like I was like, this is just something that helped me one connect with nature one to connect with myself and then also like the family friends and colleagues that are really important to me and I just thought this is too awesome to not share. And so at the very beginning of 2021 I was able to secure a collaboration with Hims. And I shared the idea that I had which was hey how cool would it be if we created like a road trip to Hims with setting the intention that like covid's not going to last forever we're hopeful that a vaccine will be made available and then by the summertime we can maybe start to connect all of these communities again. And so they got really excited about it. We like it it was officially became a thing. And so I started coordinating with all of the Hymns regional chapters across the country along this like route. And we basically traveled through 32 states starting in May. So as soon as I got my second vaccination and waited two weeks for you know, the right time, we basically started in California, went all the way across the southern states, up the east coast, and back across the northern states, and then finished the road trip at HIMSS in the first week of August. And so through that, yeah, like I said, it was 32 states, we facilitated more than 20 hikes and invited women and community members in health IT, like mostly connected through those HIMSS regional chapters to join us on outdoor hikes in beautiful parts of their region and got to talk to some amazing people and facilitate not the full reopening, but just like a way for people to get out of their COVID bubbles. At that time, it was a really like unique, special time. And then be there in person to share all of that with at the first like in-person conference again in August.
0: So what were the discussions like?
1: Yeah, everyone was sharing their experience through COVID. So I feel like I got this really unique opportunity to see, like, how did people in Texas handle it? How about in Tennessee or what about out in the the lakes of New York? And I got to witness other people's bubbles. And so they were talking about just struggles they had. A lot of them had to do with childcare and the transition into managing everything, of having to manage their kids and their work and the home life and what were the struggles with all of that. People talked a lot about their mental health, what they were doing to just stay sane. And whether it was getting outdoors or knitting or learning how to make margaritas, like it was interesting And then also just like unique opportunities that they're doing with their work. Like how has their work life and digital, like digital health and technology been changing? And yeah, I feel really fortunate. It was, that was a really special time. Like for sure, bucket list item of my life. That's amazing,
2: Joy. It really is even, you know, blows my mind to think about traveling that distance. We've never been on a road trip before ever we always take the plane that's amazing had you done anything like that before and obviously you're a very good driver
1: to, to do that <laughs> so on the very fr- the first round of the road trip I was in a Prius and it was just me and my dog but when I came back I traded wow. it in for a four-wheel drive I got a Forerunner, which maybe that doesn't mean much to anybody but in Mexico it's like the roads aren't as well paved there's way more potholes and it just made me feel safer yes. But in order to do this big trip, I actually thought, we're going to have luggage, we're going to need more space. I actually learned how to haul a trailer. So I got a trailer, a 20-foot trailer, and hitched it on to the back of my car and hauled that. And I would say that was the biggest challenge, because I had never done, like, it was all girls and and my dog, right? Like, I had never done anything like that before. It was super intimidating. And... Parking that thing, turning it around, finding the right route that would like accommodate us were parts of the challenges. And I have to say, I did have to call AAA a, a few times to help me out of a, a couple of jams I got myself into. It
0: was a year of practical skills. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> and it was a book year for you, Bianca, right? It was. i have been working on this book for five years,
2: and then I just decided... This year is the year I'm publishing the book.
0: Can you be a little (laughs) bit more specific about what is the legal perspective on digital health? Because we we had an interview this year. I interviewed you about what is digital health law. And I think that's especially very, gives you something to think when it comes to topics such as data ownership, um, data privacy. What does it mean to own the data? When you take the legal perspective of that, just the word is yours. Tell us more about that.
2: In really simple terms, digital health law has four branches. And so a lot of the time we talk about one of the branches, which is substantive law or compliance, but there are these other branches that I've been spending a lot of time looking at and things like statutory interpretation. So looking at the meaning of words within legislation, there's also an assessment of lawmaking processes. And then also the philosophical, ethical side of things, you know, looking also at the nature of law, what is the function of law in society, how is it meant to govern us, what's working well, what isn't working well. So that's really digital health law. And this book is going in in many ways, the philosophical aspects, right, the nature of law and lawmaking. So two of the four branches that that are there. In terms of ownership, you've brought up the discussion of data ownership, Right. And this is probably one of the very contested questions in digital health and broadly as we're living in the Internet of Things. And this is not going to this is not a question that's going to be resolved anytime soon. But when I think about the question of data ownership and I think about it from a legal perspective, a couple of observations. One is it's a long there's going to be a long and complex road ahead on this discussion, because we need to consider the opportunities and costs in any given approach, and certainly lawmakers will have to. And just the scales that we use to represent law, right, representing the field of law. Law is a balancing of various diverse perspectives and and oftentimes completely opposing views of how we should function as humans and as society have to be somehow balanced by law. And and sometimes we find that the answer actually exists in the middle of those polar perspectives. So in this context, you've got on the one hand people who say that patients should own their data, or consumers, and those who state that the doctor and the third parties should own the data. When I ask other lawyers about this topic, they ask me a question back, which is, why does there need to be an owner? Why does there need to be an owner? And my answer to that is well, the concept of there being no owner for data is actually foreign to common. And they return, you know, we're legislating. The, the predominant form of law today is legislation, not case law. And so legislation doesn't actually reflect what the common law or case law precedent reflects. And they argue that legislation reflects something called a bundle of rights conception of data ownership, meaning that we're looking at the rights that each party has in the data rather than focusing our efforts on who owns it, who, who actually owns the data. But at the bottom line is that either way, whether we agree on the topic or not of ownership and its meaning, we can't get around the need to determine if we should be allowed to sell our data. So if we can make money, From it, and whether this is similar to uh, commodification of the, so which is not supported in many countries, like in Australia, we can't sell our eggs and uh, surrogacy and and selling of eggs, It's, it's altruistic. You can't sell your eggs here in Australia, that is illegal, and surrogacy is altruistic. So you cannot make money, you're only paid for reasonable expenses, such as travel costs. So in some areas, the law tells us that we can't sell ourselves. Now another question is whether selling data is our data is like selling ourselves and that's a whole other discussion. So in some respects the law says you can't do this, but then whether that's reflected across the law is subject to varying opinions and arguments because you could say that in other respects it does permit a form of commodification of the human and that's where it gets really interesting and challenged a few years ago I wrote for LexisNexis which is a publishing house for for lawyers and I wrote an article about this topic and what I attempted to do it was for a legal audience what I attempted to do was to define the meaning of ownership according to various constructions so that is plausible meanings for the word ownership And I tried to run an argument for each definition based on case law and legislation and commentary. So I'd personally love to see more articles like that and people coming in and saying, Bianca, you're wrong because of ABC or this is how we we should think of it and, and just more articles like that. I'd also like to see articles talking more about practically how it will work. Eric Topol published one a few years ago about the practical side of things, how it would work with data ownership, what what his um, perspective was. And I thought that was really good. I really enjoyed that. Also, we need some pieces out there written about the times it's gone wrong, the times where a patient has sued a doctor to find out specific methodologies and processes that they used to diagnose them with a condition. There's one case that I'm thinking of right now, where a person who was diagnosed with narcissistic personality disorder wanted to understand the exact steps that, their, that the psychiatrist took to diagnose them with narcissistic personality disorder. And they were so determined. The matter actually went to court to see whether they could gain access not only to their health information, but also to the method. So that's one side of things. But we also want to see discussion of cases in the times where patients were very unjustly refused access even though they had a reasonable basis for it and they were acting reasonably. You mentioned
0: um, one very important word two times, and that's access. And I think that often gets uh, maybe confused in the discourse was. because what patient patients want is access to their data that they can share their data and that doesn't necessarily mean that they want to be the sole owner of the data i think from the patient perspective it's scary to think that now i own the data which means i have to take care of the data i can't lose the data it has to be safe and in the digital form that means that i have to be aware of all the cybersecurity risks that i might run into but yeah access is also something that is changing a lot in recent years yeah. And if I just look at some of the examples that have happened and reflecting on what I found out or saw in the last two years, it was the open notes in the U.S. where now you have to have access to the data. So doctors need to have you access to your notes. It was quite shocking for me to learn that in Denmark, patients have had access to doctor's notes since 1987, 1987, 34 years. So I think that's pretty amazing. And at the same time, if I count into that, all the interoperability challenges, I do think that the way forward is going to be for patients to be able to accumulate their own data and do whatever they want to do with that, share it with whomever they would like so that data gets analyzed. So I think Joy, you also Mm -hmm. wanted to say something.
1: Yeah, there's a couple things that are coming up for me. And one is like in the US, we've got this new access law where providers are required by law to give patients access to their records, which is amazing. But I know that Some healthcare providers are also challenged with our HIPAA laws. And so like the overlap between HIPAA privacy rules and the need to provide access is murky for especially people that who don't study regulation or study law. It can be like confusing on how do you implement these things. But I think that the intent behind them are are really great and I'm glad to see it. But the thing that I was thinking about was and I don't know how much you guys have access to this and where you're from, but like in San Diego in particular, there's several like data libraries. And so they're not necessarily tied to an individual organization or a government entity or whatever they're this like independently owned housing facility essentially of like clean, accurate data so that when people want to ask questions of it or do particular projects with it, they literally check it out. And it's not unique just to healthcare. It can be information about pets or libraries or all, all kinds of stuff. And I like that idea. And I don't know how willing private industry would be would be to participate in such a concept. But the idea that like once you have these data sets, that they become available for people to make use of them for all kinds of different purposes and... I feel like that might be, like, at legally, I don't know what would be involved. I know folks would be a little bit hesitant to share data that was very, you know, hard to get probably in the first place, but I do have the concept of, hey, once we have it, how can we put it to the most use?
0: answer. <laughs> so I can I can provide like two, two potential answers related to healthcare in this regard. So basically what you're referring to is secondary use of data, which is especially huge, I would say, that in the pharma industry. So you want to use data for something else than it was initially produced for, so using patient data for research. And in Taiwan, for example, they also have been digital for a very long time, had electronic health records, and there you actually have research centers like that. But as far as I'm aware, and it was explained to me, when you go into the research center, you can't bring anything with you. So you literally need to know what you're interested in. When you mine the data, you have to remember everything that you mined and what kind of findings you, you got. But it is there. So there is this healthcare data library that you can use for research. And at the same time, in Europe, Finland is a good example where the sharing and the use of data is, is uh, well designed so you've got an organization called Fiendata that you can apply to for research purposes, and then you either get ex- granted or denied access so you can do further research. But on a global, on, on a more broader level, there's still a lot of open questions on how can we scale this these kinds of approaches.
2: Very interesting. And here in Australia, we have secondary use of data frameworks and a whole range of legislation that deals with, with data and how it can be used for public health purposes. I like this discussion of digital health across jurisdictions and comparing and contrasting the various approaches, and that's something that I think, Tiaja, you've really championed with your podcast, which is talking about the various approaches by different jurisdictions, which is fantastic.
1: I know. Tiaja, can you tell us about your past couple of years? I feel like we haven't had a chance to hear your side of the story. <laughs>
0: Yeah, pandemic-wise, when just one week before the pandemic started... I went back to work because I I was on a maternity leave for a year. That's what you get here. So you basically get a year off. Parents can, so the mother and father can divide that time between each other. But like you you have the time to be at home. Daycare starts after the first year uh, of the child's year. And I really like comparisons of that access across the world. Again, like in Austria, you get between one and two years. In Sweden, both parents get, I think, 16 or 18 months off. So I always, I'm very interested to see those examples because I know how little time mothers in the U.S. get in that regard. So going back a week in, uh, the the pandemic started, so it was really tough for me to just uh, really start working. But just podcast and digital health-wise, one project that was a little bit uh, larger for me in 2021 was the documentary about uh, medication safety. This is a topic that I've been interested for several years. I did a master's degree in how different hospitals on different uh, levels and in the healthcare IT company that I work for. I'm in the medication management team. So we provide the electronic prescribing and medication management system for hospitals. So in the documentary, which is called Overdose, I was exploring what are the causes that medication management is still very difficult today. And it's difficult because of the processes, it's difficult because any technology that you try to implement is first and foremost a cultural change so you need a lot of preparations for the implementations you need to train people Uh, you need to get the buy-in so people in the end use uh, the software there's challenges such as look-alike names drugs that have very similar and all that can really cause problems and errors uh, in the medication uh, management space and there's uh, a lot of that uh, related to medication administration errors, prescription errors. And, yeah, I would uh, just encourage everyone to really look at the documentary that was recorded with 15 experts from 10 countries. I, again, took the, a very international approach because I was, again, interested in to see to which extent do, do the views on medication management differ. And it turns out that it's very similar in many cases. A huge uh, challenge is interoperability. So the fact that when a patient enters an ER or gets to, to the hospital, it's very hard for the clinical staff there to know what exactly does the patient take because there's no connection with the GP. UK is, get, is making great strides in this regard, but in essence, in the US and Canada, with the opioid crisis, one of the reasons was that it was impossible for doctors to know if a patient that came in for pain management, if it, he or she was already different ER to get another prescription so just understanding how the patient medication history can impact what you're going to prescribe and what kind of mistakes can happen mm-hmm. is huge not to mention the challenges that EHRs and electronic uh, systems bring with uh, alerting with the burden for the doctors it's a hugely complex topic
2: It is. Very complex, very interesting. Also interested in the patient responsibility there as well. Tiaja, what are the key things that need to be resolved to reduce patient harm due to medications? You mentioned interoperability. Is there anything else
0: that comes to mind? I guess one of the things that I think is quite interesting, or was at least like a little bit of an epiphany to me was when Abdullah Al-Hawsawi, who's from Saudi Arabia, he's a huge expert in patient safety and reducing patient harm. And he said that kind of the missing piece in the whole medication management story is really the patient. So knowing the complexity the clinical environment presents knowing that when you get into the hospital you're not really necessarily getting into a safe space you've got nurses there that are overburdened you've got doctors there that are busy especially now in the covid times so mistakes can happen really quickly so it's really important that you or your family is really mindful of what's happening is the nurse giving you the right drug is is everything happening the way it was said it is and it's for the patient, when you're in a vulnerable position, it can be a little bit hard to comprehend everything that's happening, which is why it's so good that if you have the chance that you've got some support, a family or a friend there, that can also be in the process very mindfully. Not because we would distrust the the, the clinical staff, that's absolutely not the case, but just knowing that the complexity of the clinical environment is what can Cause challenges in the US, many healthcare institutions already use closed loop medication management systems, which means that the medications are also checked with barcoding. So the patient has a barcode, the, the drug has a barcode, and you scan both before giving it to the patient but many other institutions don't have that so you really need to be a very present and mindful for patient and that i think it's something that we still need to adopt but it's it that also requires a cultural shift with where more collaboration among the clinical staff and the patient is normal i think it's still very hard to be to speak up as a patient because your life is in danger you're scared and it's just it's you're not your normal self and it's easy to say that we need collaboration, but when you look at what exactly does that mean, it becomes much more complicated similarly as uh, when we talked about what does it mean to own your data and who should own it.
2: Yes, it's very hard to speak up as a patient. And I think people need to be mindful of that and education, awareness of this, and it is really important. And we mentioned family support. I mean, some of us have family support, others don't, so that's a challenge uh, as well, especially if someone's sick, maybe not thinking clearly, and, and they're now in the hospital environment perhaps by themselves. There's a lot of work there that we can be doing to empower patience. I think we've all been there, we've all been in that situation.
0: And speaking of empowerment, Joy, one of your basically focus of the the Hit Like a Girl podcast is all about women empowerment, femtech. Can you tell us a little bit about what kind of findings did you came across in 2021? How would you condense that?
1: Oh my gosh. So I have learned a lot. I've met some really amazing women and just learned a lot about just what we're facing as a group of people, mostly in the US, some out international. But some of the stats have been just profound. One thing I've learned is that women, especially like millennial age younger, are getting more education and are like performing outperforming their male counterparts and so turns out that within the next decade 70% of our workforce is meant to be women and so when i think about okay how do we treat the women in the the workforce now and how is that going to have to systematically change and evolve over time to address so that like people within C suites or leadership positions, it's actually reflecting the community of people that's actually in the workforce. And we have a lot of work to do. That's essentially what I've there's a lot of work being done, but there is a lot of work still yet to do. And so some of the things that have been really inspired by some of the technology and research that has been pointed at women specifically, so in for women's health, I've seen a lot of focus on including one, targeted therapeutics, making sure that there's more available for different types of cancer. That has been really I don't know, encouraging more research and products available and studies on endometriosis, something that affects mostly women, like it's 99 of the folks that have endometriosis are women, a more focus on menopause and supporting women through IVF treatment and just throughout their whole stage of their lifetime. It's been interesting to think about how a lot of the technology apps or resources available for women have this lens that has to do with reproduction but we are much more than just being moms like being moms is a big part of being a woman but it's not the only part and so one thing i've been really like inspired by is to see technologies for women as they age Like, how can they be empowered as they're on the road through going through menopause? And also, some of the other encouraging stuff is that even though the baseline has been relatively low for investment in women-founded organizations, but the stats are improving, that there has been a shift in the needle, that there is more investment funds going to women-led organizations, which is good, but it's it's good to see progress and also know that we still have a, a... long way to
0: go. We haven't uh, talked a lot about the position of women but I think in the pandemic that has also become one of the, the bigger topics with women especially in the U.S. more often leaving the workforce because they had to take care of the, the children and I must say that yeah looking at the global picture it's quite worrisome to see uh, how the On the one hand, there's this whole movement about women quotas, about women engagement, about supporting entrepreneurship of women. And on the same on the same in the same society, you've got Texas that uh, accepted the new abortion law where, you know, after six weeks you can't have an abortion. You've got a similar case in Poland where women basically can't get an abortion unless it was uh, an incest or, or a rape case. So it's from that perspective I see that we still have a lot of work to do in the society when it comes to what does it mean to to have rights as a woman in in this society.
1: And the other thing is looking at maternal and infant mortality rates in the U.S. Like I learned that an American woman is 15% more likely to die during childbirth now than her mother was in in just one generation before. And so it's not really, we have not made it a particularly safe place for women to have kids in the United States specifically for brown and black people and underrepresented communities. And so it's a harsh reality when you think about it, when there's certain states that have access to care and others that don't even have access to education. It's not like, like there's a pro- prohibition on even talking about certain things. And so that is, that's a little bit of a tough a pill to swallow. And speaking of pills, I believe that it was this last week that the abortion pill by mail just got approved so that women around the country, if they live in states that approve of them getting it, are able to get an abortion pill through mail, but not if they're in particular state. I don't know what this year is going to bring. We're close to potentially overturning Roe. And like I feel like without having the balance of, okay, we're going to provide childcare or other types of resources for families. We're really setting people up for failure, which is pretty unfortunate.
0: A huge topic, I guess, for equality. And I'm sure, Bianca, you in, in 2021 was a year uh, for your book, but I guess a lot of people got to know you in 2020, including me, because you organized an event, Vo- Voice for Equality.
2: You know, it's it's a really complex topic. I don't see it as uh, meaning anything in particular other than finding that balance in a way that's reasonable and ethical and moral and you know, it supports people. But also we need to respect varying opinions as well about uh, and values. So it's about respecting those values but at the same time keeping people safe and I think that's really important, so we need to keep people safe and healthy and and that's a value that I personally hold, but you know, equality it has a particular meaning in law and it's used in law all the time and it has a lot of people like to talk about equity instead of equality rather than talking about us as being equal because a lot of people say well, we're not equal we don't we come from different places, and to say that we're equal is actually disregarding who we are and our circumstances when I say equality and we're equal i mean in the terms of as human beings we are all human beings and so that's where i begin and so as human beings i believe in certain things and certain protections that we should have and so that's how i talk about the the meaning of equality a lot of talking about equity so how can we ensure that we're providing access to internet and to healthcare, to all these different things for people who otherwise wouldn't have that, it's, it's such an important topic. It always will be. It always, it, I think, it always should be front and center, and especially as we move towards 21st century digital health we do need to be thinking about this so i did run three events voice for equality and one was with amazon and it, it was great it was really great and Tiasha, thank you for being part of
0: that as well as the book because you- yeah true but it's we're slowly gonna finish off this discussion but i think that when we talk about digital health innovation at least for me i like the optimism I like the the innovation that's happening, the disruption, looking at the U.S. uh, healthcare market, which, I mean, has more problems than one could describe in a week. But at the same time, there's so much new ideas coming up. You can see the disruption with now. A lot of digital health uh, companies are not trying to sell into providers, but are becoming providers, which on the long run, to me, means that a lot of things might change because that gives you a lot of... Uh, a different power than if you just provide an app to, to an already existing power player on the market. But I always think when it comes to these innovations, who is going to be able to to access it? And I always wonder if with the increase of digital technologies, are we just increasing the gap between the well-off wealthy, And healthy and those that can't access uh, or afford those technologies. And maybe that also goes to the fact that when you've got digital health startups, when they scale and when they decide to uh, which market they're going to go to, they look at that from the business perspective and I'm from the country with two million people and I see all these amazing things that I'm like of course nobody's gonna come to a country it's just like two million people okay yeah I'm gonna move to 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 the U.S. for a while to be able to get a VR headset and some mental health well-being app because I'm super curious about how, how that actually looks like but I don't know should we wrap up slowly what do you guys want to say as some of the last words?
1: I'll go. I think that the, the thing that comes to mind is pulled from a conversation from one of the most recent podcast episodes I got an opportunity to interview a woman from HHS. She is a, you know, a part of regional health and human services for the U.S. government. She brought up a term around digital empathy that like as we go and move towards more digital health, we need to, to your point, have more empathy about who has access to that and how can we incorporate that into our like our business model because other if we don't have empathy or digital empathy we're essentially going to be creating more of a divide and I don't think that's what any of us want so that's excellent and something I'm
2: talking about at the moment is multidisciplinary digital health strategies Right. So being able to take the perspectives from various disciplines, medicine, science, psychology, business, law, commerce, and being able to put that into a cohesive strategy where you can move forward as a business and hopefully succeed, but take those various perspectives on board. So I'm going to be running some classes on that in 2020. 22 online and it's really important because we have to to some degree we have to work together we can't have these silos and and we need to bring it all together somehow which can be very challenging so i'm going to provide a guide in, in how to do that
0: you've been listening to faces of digital health if you enjoyed the show do leave a rating or a review wherever you listen to your podcasts and to browse through other episodes as well See your podcast player or go to www.facesofdigitalhealth.com. Faces of Digital Health is a proud member of the Health Podcast Network. So if you would like to explore healthcare further from various perspectives, go to healthpodcastnetwork.com. Stay tuned.